Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, this is Amit. On behalf of all of us at Cardio Nerds, we are thrilled to bring to you our Decipher the Guideline series for the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite sized, high impact clinical vignette based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and created for educational purposes only. This series was developed by the Cardio Nerds and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college student through advanced fellows with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bazanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance along the way. So friends, join us as we get to learn about the heart failure guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. And now, let's get nerdy. The following question refers to sections 11.3 of the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA guideline for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by a Western Michigan University medical student and cardio nerds intern Shivani Reddy, answered first by Johns Hopkins Osler Internal Medicine resident and Cardio Nerds Academy fellow, Dr. Justin Brilliant, and then by our expert faculty, Dr. Harriet Van Spall. Dr. Van Spall is an associate professor of medicine cardiologist, and director of e-health at McMaster University. Dr. Van Spall is a Canadian Institutes of Health research-funded clinical trialist and researcher with a focus on heart failure, health services, and health disparities. Dr. Van Spall, it's an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so delighted to be here and to meet each of you and look forward to supporting your program. Excellent. Thank you so much. With that, Shivani, do you have a question to get us started? Yes, thank you so much, Alex. So today our patient is Ms. Augustine, who's a 33-year-old G1T1 woman from Haiti who seeks counseling regarding family planning as she and her husband dream of a second child. Her first pregnancy 12 months ago was complicated by preeclampsia and peripartum cardiomyopathy with LVEF of 35%. Thankfully, she delivered a healthy baby via C-section. She has no other past medical history and is currently on losartan 25 mg daily and metoprolol succinate 200 mg daily. She has been asymptomatic. Given this, which of the following statements is recommended to medically optimize Ms. Augustine's care prior to her second pregnancy? A. No medical optimization or preconception planning is needed as her first pregnancy resulted in a healthy infant. B. Discontinue losartan and metoprolol with no other needed pregnancy planning. C. Change her medication regimen, consider a repeat TTE, and provide patient-centered counseling regarding risk of a future pregnancy. Or D. Continue losartan and metoprolol and advise against repeat pregnancy. The correct answer is C. Change her medication regimen, consider repeat TTE, and provide patient-centered counseling regarding risk of a future pregnancy. Heart failure may complicate pregnancy either secondary to an existing pre-pregnancy cardiomyopathy or as a result of peripartum cardiomyopathy. In women with a history of heart failure or cardiomyopathy, including previous peripartum cardiomyopathy, 
patient-centered counseling regarding contraception and the risk of cardiovascular deterioration during pregnancy should be provided. And as a class one recommendation and level of evidence C, Peripartum cardiomyopathy is defined as systolic dysfunction, typically left ventricular ejection fraction less than 45%, often with left ventricular dilation occurring in late pregnancy or early postpartum with no other identifiable etiology. Peripartum cardiomyopathy occurs worldwide with the highest incidence in Haiti, Nigeria, and South Africa. Other clinical risk factors include maternal age greater than 30 years, African ancestry, multiparity, multigestation, preeclampsia or eclampsia, anemia, diabetes, obesity, and prolonged tocolysis. The pathogenesis of peripartum cardiomyopathy is complex and it is likely a multifactorial process. The combination of hemodynamic changes of pregnancy, inflammation of the myocardium, hormonal changes, genetic factors, and an autoimmune response have all been proposed as possible mechanisms and these may certainly be interrelated. While pregnancy is generally well tolerated in women with cardiomyopathy and NYHA class 1 pre-pregnancy, clinical deterioration can occur and so counseling and shared decision making are important. In fact, the ROPAC study, ROPAC, of pregnancy outcomes for women with structural heart disease showed that women with pre-pregnancy or peripartum cardiomyopathy had the highest mortality rate at 2.4%. Subsequent pregnancies for women with previous peripartum cardiomyopathy have been associated with further decreases in LV function, maternal death, and adverse fetal outcomes. Left ventricular ejection fraction less than 50% prior to a subsequent pregnancy is the strongest prognostic determinant. Different strategies are needed to optimize the cardiovascular health of women with a prior history of peripartum cardiomyopathy before embarking on a subsequent pregnancy, including preconception counseling regarding risk of subsequent pregnancies, pharmacologic strategies, and a multidisciplinary approach to expectant management. Preconception counseling can utilize cardiovascular risk tools, including the Zahara 1 and CARPREG 2 scores, which can predict poor outcomes during pregnancy in women with prior heart disease, and you can also obtain a baseline TTE prior to conception to inform shared decision-making. As for pharmacologic strategies, in women with heart failure or cardiomyopathy who are pregnant or currently planning for pregnancy, an ACE inhibitor, an ARB, RNE, an MRA, an SGLT2 inhibitor, evabradine, and verisiguat should not be administered because of significant risks of fetal harm, and that's a class 3 recommendation and level of evidence C. Beta blockers, preferably metoprolol, hydralazine, and nitrates are considered acceptable during pregnancy when guided by multidisciplinary shared decision-making regarding benefits and potential risks. Diuretic dosing should be discussed, if applicable, to minimize risk of placental hypoperfusion. A repeat TTE should be performed three months following changes in heart failure medicine regimen. Of note, postpartum women who breastfeed can start an ACE inhibitor, preferably enalapril or captopril, and metoprolol remains the preferred beta blocker. Multidisciplinary care may include consultations with genetics, gynecology, and maternal fetal medicine teams as appropriate to the outcome of shared decision-making. During pregnancy, for women with decompensated heart failure or evidence of hemodynamic instability antepartum, delivery planning will include obstetrics and maternal fetal medicine, anesthesia, and neonatology teams. 
Therefore, answer choice C is correct because preconception counseling is essential to guide pertinent discussions on risk gratification prior to subsequent pregnancies. Additionally, her medications need to be modified by discontinuing her angiotensin receptor blocker prior to conception. Choice A is incorrect because she has high risk for worsening cardiomyopathy and repeat preeclampsia in her next pregnancy. Choice B is incorrect because shared decision-making and risk stratification prior to second pregnancy is essential. Choice D is incorrect because although she is at high risk for complications, including worsening cardiomyopathy, preeclampsia or eclampsia, and neonatal demise, repeat pregnancy is not absolutely contraindicated and should be an informed decision after appropriate education within the construct of a multidisciplinary team. Therefore, in summary, when a patient with a history of peripartum cardiomyopathy is planning on a repeat pregnancy, patient-centered counseling regarding risks and management strategies should be provided with guidance from a multidisciplinary team and medications should be adjusted to balance GDMT for heart failure against the risks to fetal development. Dr. Von Spall, do you have anything else that you would like to add to this case or to this discussion regarding heart failure and pregnancy? You know, I just wanted to highlight that patients with persistent LV dysfunction and symptoms before pregnancy, regardless of the etiology, but particularly with the past history of peripartum cardiomyopathy, are at highest risk of decompensation and of death during subsequent pregnancy. And in my discussions, you know, I highlight that death pertains to the mother and to the child, and it has implications on the entire family. And I discuss this in the context of planning a subsequent pregnancy, respecting the patient and their perspective and sometimes their need to have another biological child versus the potential loss of life that at a young age could be so tragic for so many people. I counsel these patients using the shared decision-making approach that you discussed. And I asked whether she would like to have her spouse involved in the conversation. I'm mindful of cultural nuances when discussing this issue and the role of the partner in formulating a plan in some instances. I refer patients to gynecology for discussion of birth control because I'm certainly not an expert in that area. I also offer to refer the partner to a urologist if there is interest in a couple's or team approach to preventing pregnancy in the woman. I refer patients to genetics for counseling regarding genetic cardiomyopathies. And also, if the person is passionate about having a biological child and not um, a, a child that they could adopt, for example, get maternal fetal medicine and high-risk obstetrics involved in the counseling even before the person proceeds with the pregnancy. I feel that a shared team approach is good not only for the person to have a balanced viewpoint, but also to plan ahead for pregnancy and safe delivery. Thank you, Dr. Von Spall. That's very helpful regarding your approach to the conversation with someone who's at risk given this peripartum cardiomyopathy and how you go about with this multidisciplinary discussion with many specialists involved. And one question I had is, how do you transition one's guideline-directed medical therapy into the postpartum period? Do you have any particular strategies there? 
into the postpartum period, so you mean initiating back the therapies that have been withheld, important to mention that ACE inhibitors and ARBs are known to be associated with deformities in the child and the fetus. So renal and tubular dysplasias, fetal growth retardation, disorders of the skull bone formation, also lung hypoplasia, and in some cases, intrauterine fetal death. And so they're strictly contraindicated during pregnancy. And that's the rationale for why we switch from RAS inhibitors pre-pregnancy to hydralazine and nitrates. We leave patients on beta blockers, sometimes switch them to metoprolol from other beta blockers. And this whole area gives pause for consideration of how women who are pregnant, who could possibly become pregnant, and who are lactating are categorically excluded from clinical trials. I mean, when would we rely on hydralazine and nitrate to manage a young person with heart failure, right? So we need to focus on drug development, on safe testing, and on efficacious medications that are informed by clinical trials, which are really the safest setting for these therapies to be tested in. There's no specific data to guide the use of ARNIs or SGLT2 inhibitors in these patients. There's no specific data for other second-line therapies, ivabradine, verisiguat, name it, and there's a high likelihood that there's no high-quality evidence to shape treatment of this high-risk population. So following delivery, we transition back from hydralazine and nitrates to ACE inhibitors. We try to use captopril and enalapril. The names don't even come to mind because we typically don't use these drugs in other populations. And peripartum cardiomyopathy in the large scheme of things is a rare cause of heart failure overall. But we switch back to some of these older therapies whenever we treat these young women. Thank you very much, Dr. Von Spall. This has been a wonderful discussion, and I've taken away so many pearls that I will use in my future practice as a cardiologist. Justin, Dr. Van Spall, thank you both so much for teaching us about peripartum cardiomyopathy and for going over the various nuances that are involved in optimizing cardiovascular care for patients with a history of peripartum cardiomyopathy who might be pregnant or are considering pregnancy like our patient from today, Ms. Augustine. Fantastic. Thank you for your astute questions.